0: Back in those days, all navigation was done with Dead Reckoning and with Celestial, and you were almost continuously in a semi-state of being somewhat lost. Ken and I were thinking that this would be an interesting company, that we would build navigation computers for Ocean Racing sailboats. And then in a discussion with Nolan, Nolan said that that was about the stupidest thing he'd ever heard. But would it be possible to solve the navigation problem for automobiles?
1: Coming up, Stan Honey on Navigation. Buddy, Ben Jedwards here. Welcome to the culture of tech. So what does it mean to be lost? What does it mean to be found? And is being lost such a fundamental condition of humanity that if you lose the ability to be lost, is something lost? Okay, I lost you there with that one. But today on the show, we're going to talk to Stan Honey, who is a pioneer in navigation, having co-founded etech the creator of the world's first computerized in-car navigation system in the early 80s with the help of folks like Ken Milnes and of course the funding of ex-Atari CEO Nolan Bushnell. One of the cool things about Stan's story is that his love of technology goes way beyond technology for technology's sake. He was trying to solve a problem. He was trying to help people navigate better on the ocean, in the car, everywhere. And so every time today when you use a map application on your iPhone or your Android or in your car, on your TomTom, on your screens and your ding-dangs and all that stuff, you're recalling the very cool, very important pioneering work of Stan Honey. So with that out of the way, let's get on with it. So on this episode of The Culture of Tech, we have Stan Honey, a pioneer in navigational technologies, having invented the world's first computerized car navigation system. And then he went on to found Sport Vision, which pioneered on-screen graphics you see all over TV sports these days, like computerized first downlines and glowing hockey pucks and more. And also, that's that's sort of like the small part of his career, because he's also probably the world's greatest yacht navigator, having won the TransPAC race 11 times or so. Welcome to the Culture of Tech, Stan. It's an honor to have you here. Well, I'm flattered to be asked, Bench. And it's been a while since we talked. I think I, I did an article about eTech for Fast Company in 2015, and I think that's the last time we did an interview.
0: Yeah, it's, a, it's interesting that I think you first brought eTech back into people's awareness from the dustbin of history. And then it, it was of interest to me that I've had an old ETAC navigator sitting in my garage for decades. And then within the last oh, month or so, I've had a couple of requests for people to look at it. And then actually the computer history museum asked for it. So this afternoon, I'm going to drop it off there. Oh, wow. So I, so I think it was, I think you actually, you know, made the world back aware of what we did at ETAC, you know, starting in the early 80s.
1: You know, I work alone in a in an office in North Carolina. I don't see people from California very often, so it's really neat to see that my work can actually make some sort of historical difference, and I think that's really neat. Today, I'd like to talk to you about navigation, which is sort of obvious, because it's played a huge role throughout your entire life. Just like I talked to Steve Wozniak about television, it was sort of the thread that carried his career. And I want to go way back. We don't have to get into too much detail about all these things, but do you remember the first time you were ever on a boat? When that was and how young you were?
0: You know, probably five or six. um, My dad was a sailor and interested in it. And so he used to um, borrow an L-24 from some family friends and the family would sail to Catalina. And then he bought an old El Toro and fixed it up. And so I think I first sailed with my dad on the a 24 and an el toro you know when i was five or six and where was that uh, the el toro i think was in ventura and the l24 would have been out of uh, los angeles yacht club and la harbor and then you know sailing over to catalina and back
1: and did you feel something instinctual about liking sailing like it was in your blood from the beginning
0: Um, I don't know, you know, exactly how it works between parents and kids, but I knew my dad was really committed to sailing. So I always had an interest in it and I can't really explain why because, you know, my father was never pushy about anything, but nevertheless, I sort of picked up his interest in sailing and I was aware of the fact that he had been a navigator, but he never really talked about it much. And my godfather was a navigator in the war on B-17s. And so very early on, I developed a curiosity about navigation and taught myself and was just very interested in that whole field my entire life.
1: When did you first go sailing by yourself? Did you ever do any solo? I don't know how it works, like how young you can be to take a boat out on you know, a yacht out somewhere.
0: Well, kids, of course, learn to sail in dinghies, you know, little tiny boats. You know, so I learned to sail and then I was probably off sailing around in a Guppy, which is an eight foot long boat in LA Harbor and in Catalina. Certainly by the time I was, I don't know, nine or 10, you know, from then on. And then, you know, as a teenager, I raced lasers, which is a single handed dinghy. In college, there's a lot of single handed racing. In terms of offshore single handing, I don't think I raced a big boat offshore until. Uh, moving up to this moving to the San Francisco Bay Area after after college and after graduate school, and my wife and I bought a Cal 40. And we bought it to cruise, but actually ended up mostly racing it. And then I started racing it single handed, did the single handed Farallon's race and single handed long back, and I also did the single handed transpack race,
1: mm.
0: which was a you know 11 day trip single handed to Hawaii. I think that was in '92.
1: Wow, that's amazing. And single-handed being, you're the only hand on the boat, as in one person. Is that the terminology?
0: That's exactly right.
1: You're not just sailing the boat with one arm. (laughs) No. (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) Because, you know, I am a sailing novice. Well, nothing. Sailing nothing. I've never been sailing. So uh, I presume that people who are listening might also be similarly fascinated with it, but not familiar with the terms. Have you ever been lost on the ocean? Did you ever get lost somewhere?
0: Um, yeah, I think well, we've all well, actually, people today may not, you know young people today may not actually have ever experienced that, because today, everything knows where it is, whether it's your phone or your camera or you know, your car, what have you. But those of us that are a little bit older were you know often in a state of being lost, you know, whether it was on the roads or you know out backpacking, and certainly sailing. And after college, I used to um, navigate a lot in ocean races. And back in those days, meaning prior to the early 80s, all navigation was done with Dead Reckoning and with Celestial. And um, you were almost continuously in a semi-state of being somewhat lost. And the key to a good navigator was being able to come up with an, sort of an accurate estimate of the area that you might be in, meaning sort of a contour of you know, equal probability or a contour of you know, reasonable probability that would contain your position. And then in a race, you would make decisions based on that area that you might be in. And then you take every opportunity to shrink that area, whether it's by measuring the depth of the water. You know, if you had an opportunity to measure the the azimuth to a lighthouse or something or to take a um, celestial sight, the sun, moon, planet or stars.
1: When did computers start being involved in that nautical navigation what year? About like late seventies.
0: Well, there's there's really two steps. The first step was you know electronic navigation, which is just purely position determination. And you know there's been electronic navigation techniques that have been available since you know even before World War II. And Loran A and Loran C were available basically since World War II. But in the era where I was navigating in the late seventies and early eighties. The racing rules of sailing were such that you weren't entitled to use that. And so even though in, say, for example, the Admiral's Cup in England, even though DECA and Loran were available, we weren't allowed to use it. So all of the navigation during the races like the Fastnet race, and the Channel race, all of the navigation took place using the traditional techniques of Dead Reckoning and Celestial. And it could be quite hairy because in the English Channel, Celestial often isn't all that useful because it's you know, overcast a lot. And so there was often be situations where you you weren't lost, but the area of uncertainty was quite large. And so you nevertheless had to find the mark. And so you had to come up with a technique, you know, an algorithm to find the mark. And whether that's sailing down a certain contour line of depth or whether it's finding a headland and then going out to find the channel buoy you know, whatever it happened to be, you had to think ahead. You had to deal very deliberately with the fact that you didn't know where you were exactly, and you had to deal deliberately with being able to estimate the uncertainty of your own position.
1: So that the navigational skill was considered a key part of the sport and the sportsmanship of the racing at that time. Is that an accurate way to put it?
0: Oh yeah, in those days. I mean, the navigator's always been an important competitive part of ocean racing. But in those days, a lot of the competition had to do with position determination and finding the mark in a relatively you know, inexpensive way because you did have to physically find the mark and see it, go around it. You couldn't just you know, round it estimating that you must have gone around it. And so if a navigator truly was lost and he didn't have a plan, I mean, the obvious case is if you're overly confident and you sail right to where you think an offshore buoy is and you don't find it, at that point, you're toast because you don't know which way to turn. So what do you do? Just start sailing, increasing circles. And that's (laughs) really expensive in time. Mm. So instead, what you would do is you'd come up with a plan and the plan would be, okay, I am confident that I know where we are within three miles or four miles or whatever your estimate is. So I'm going to go on the west side of this buoy by four miles, and then I'm going to turn and sail down this depth contour. And then we will find the buoy in a very deliberate, predictable way, and then we'll round it and carry on with the race. And so navigators in those days could win and, of course, lose races just by their skill at position determination and their skill at dealing with uncertainty.
1: Now, when you you did the Transpac in 78, and that's the first one you won as a navigator, right? That um,
0: actually, it was seventy nine. Seventy
1: nine. Okay. Now, at that time, what sort of navigational tools did you have? Did you incorporate any electronic navigation at that point?
0: Uh, that race was on drifter, and it was a hundred percent traditional. Meaning, we had celestial and dead reckoning, and that's all we used.
1: For you know, for people who are listening who have no idea what we're talking about, celestial navigation is, is just sighting stars and. Determining your position based on the moon or the stars...
0: Yeah, basically what you do is you you use a sextant and you measure the height of a celestial body above the horizon using a sextant. This is the same technique that has been... Ancient. Yeah, it's an ancient technique that the instrument has changed, you know, from a cross staff to an astrolabe to a, you know, octant to a sextant. So the current sextants were kind of developed in the early 1900s. And, you know, that's a wonderful instrument that's fun to use because it represents hundreds of years of development. Yeah. But then the mathematics is one of the traditional mathematics that's best explained by Nathaniel Bowditch of how you take measurement of the height of a celestial body above the horizon. You look up in the tables the geographic position of the celestial body, meaning the point on the Earth above which that celestial body is straight up. And then you go through a bunch of interesting spherical trig to work out a line of position, which is if you measured that celestial body at a certain height, well, then you must be somewhere along this line on your chart that runs perpendicular to the direction towards the position of the celestial body. So all parts of that are fascinating, meaning it's cool that it works. The use of the sextant is intriguing because it represents so many years of development. And then even the mathematical site reduction is fascinating because there have been very clever techniques developed through the years. But then the spherical trig isn't actually all that complicated. Anybody with a college you know, math courses can sort out and understand the spherical trig. And it's easy to do on a pocket calculator, but it's also very interesting how cleverly designed the site reduction tables are. And mostly those were innovated during World War II to make it so that um, flight crews and V-17s and whatnot could very quickly do their site reduction and work out where they were. And then also very quickly be trained because they were trying to turn high school kids into celestial navigators.
1: So dead reckoning is another ancient technique, which is based on the known location of a fixed geographical object, right? And how far you've traveled since that. Am I saying it right? Well, basically
0: what you do is Dead Reckoning assumes that you have a starting point where you know where you were. And then what you do is you take that starting point and then you advance that position through measurements of your own distance traveled and heading. And then you basically keep track of where you are, given that you, knew, you know where you started from and then you know the directions and distances that you traveled. And then, of course, the thing that's critical to Dead Reckoning is that you have to estimate the fact that you don't know your heading exactly. Don't know your distance traveled exactly. So the farther you travel, the less certain you become of your actual position. And for all of the navigational decisions that navigators have to make in wartime, or that competitive navigators used to have to make, it's really, really important that you be able to estimate the accuracy of your dead and position.
1: Now, after that seventy nine race, you won, and you got a pretty good reputation as a navigator, I, I presume, just as being a part of the championship crew there. Can you talk about when, I think we'll just fast forward a little bit to when uh, Nolan Bushnell's boat entered the picture. And um, is boat the right term for a yacht of that size? By the way, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, how... it's fine. Okay. Because I know there are people who are offended if you say a ship is a boat or a boat is a ship and all this stuff. You know, What's the difference between a ship and a boat anyway?
0: Um, a boat is small enough to be carried on a ship. And the only exception to that is submarines. Submarines are always boats, even though the biggest submarines are too big to ever be carried on another ship. But, and then yacht is just kind of a frou-frou term for you know a sailing boat.
1: A fancy sailing boat?
0: Yeah, fancy, I guess, would be a better description. So yacht and boat are truly interchangeable, but boat and ship are different in that a boat can be carried on a ship with the exception of a submarine And all submarines are
1: boats. So if you could carry a ship on something else what would you call that? <laughs> <laughs> then it would become a boat. So what I'm trying to to suggest is that I want to know about the transition between when you were doing things manually and when things became electronic in navigation on the the yachts. When did that happen and and I can't remember if you and your inventions were instrumental in that change or not on Charlie you know, around that time. Or...
0: Well, that's an interesting question. So Charlie was Nolan's boat. And at that point, Nolan had already you know, started Atari and become wealthy and started Pizza Time Theater. And he wanted to win the Transpac race. So uh, Nolan contacted a couple of well-known sailors in the San Francisco Bay Area, Steve Taft and John Andron and Bruce Monroe and asked them to run a program to win the Transpac race. And then they contracted to have a boat designed and built, the Charlie, and they contracted with me and a bunch of other professional sailors to race it. They hired me to be the navigator. and the race was 1983, and we subsequently did win it. But 1983 was right at the transition in technology. In 1983 on Charlie, we actually used a transit satellite navigation system. And transit, this is before GPS, but nevertheless, it was you know, satellite navigation. Hmm. Um, I also used Celestial as a backup because transit would only give you a position you know, every few hours. And then the other thing that we did on Charlie, which was completely new at the time, is that a colleague of mine at SRI named Ken Melds, the two of us proposed to Nolan that we build a, a sort of a performance computer for the boat. And Nolan agreed agreed with our proposal, and paid us to build the system. And so we built a system that monitored the performance of the boat. It learned the performance of the boat as a function of wind angle and wind speed. It would uh, read, capture weather data by digitizing the weather facts charts. Wow. It would help us, it would help me uh, pick the fastest course by, you know, interpreting the weather maps, um, figuring, making up a kind of vector field of wind and then running the boat's polar performance matrix against that vector field to estimate the fastest course. And then it would also verify that weather data by analyzing the daily position reports from other boats in the fleet. And this was, it was in a big blue waterproof box. It was based on a NSC 800, which was a CMOS version of the Z80. Mm -hmm. Ken and I and another colleague at, at SRI named Taylor Washburn, we wrote all the software for it. And it helped us win the race. And then today...
1: Well, wait, before we get... how How is that not cheating at the time to do that with a computer? Did there, were there any rules about what you could use for navigation in the TransPAC or not use? No, there
0: had been rules years earlier. But eventually, the community of yacht racing discovered that it was just too difficult to try to write rules limiting the use of computers. Because, you know, what's a computer? Is a pocket calculator a computer? You know, yes. Hmm. Um, you know, is a digital watch a computer? I mean, it got to the point where they couldn't outlaw it. And so then some years earlier, the sport of sailing had said it's OK to use electronic position determination and that's OK to and there's no restrictions against the use of onboard computing. But they continued to restrict and even today they restrict the use of outside information. So the only outside information that you're entitled to use is information that's publicly available to everybody. You can't hire some expert from off the boat to tell you where to
1: go. Mm, Interesting. Yeah. Because that would be sort of offloading the navigation to someone who's not on the boat, maybe. Yeah. They're watching from a satellite. They're like, "Okay, turn left.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they don't allow you to do that. But then and still today, they allow you to do any kind of computer processing you can. And they allow you to use any information so long as it's publicly available to everybody.
1: And that, that's just fascinating. So you the system you developed with your friends at on Charlie was a significant innovation in oh gosh, not telemetry. What's what's the way to call it? You know, the, the performance of the boat, this computerized analysis. Routing. Routing. It's
0: basically computer routing using the sort of learned performance estimate of the boat's capabilities as a function of wind angle and wind speed and then using the predicted wind field as interpreted from the synoptic weather maps
1: so it's just like a cisco router right i'm just kidding, <laughs> just kidding. you well, could have been a billionaire i tell you
0: yeah, running on a nsc 800
2: lost my friend you
1: never get lost again thanks to Stan Honey This is this is interesting when I asked Nolan you know when I was doing that eTac uh, article I was like how did this uh this idea come about between you and Stan of the navigator and he was he, he went into this story that was dramatic. He's like it's about it was about four in the morning as I remember it and we were on the night watch and (laughs) we were doing the calculations and uh, Stan just said, Oh man, this would be so much easier if uh, we weren't on the ocean. And then, you know, uh, so is there any truth to that?
0: (laughs) I don't recall that exact conversation. And of course it was long ago, but I do recall that, you know, Ken and I proposed to do this boat performance improvement, you know, system and Nolan paid for it and we used it to win the race. And then, now, Ken and I were thinking that this would be an interesting company, that we would build you know, navigation computers for ocean racing sailboats. And then in a discussion with Nolan, you know, Nolan said that that was about the stupidest thing he'd ever heard. But if you could do, you know, if we knew a lot about navigation, would it be possible to solve the navigation problem for automobiles and have a consumer product? and so i got to thinking about that and proposed to nolan that if you digitize the roadmap not as an image but as a topologically structured vector database and if you did a dead reckoning system where you measured the motion of the car you know the direction of travel and the distance and then if you cross-correlated between the measured path of the car and the available roads in the database in the vicinity you could then much the way navigators They reduce or eliminate the accumulation of uncertainty in their dead reckoning by taking bearings off headlands and lighthouses. What the navigator could do is it could um, continue to improve the estimate of its position and reduce uncertainty by update, by cross correlating to the roads in the database that you're driving on. So if you take a certain clover leaf, well, that unambiguously confirms your location. So that was the discussion that took place on board. And then at the end of the race and shortly thereafter, Nolan said, let's do it. And offered to provide the seed money to found ETAC.
1: Oh yeah, I love engineers because they think like you just described, which is like, well, if we could, we, you know, all we got to do is just vectorize the entire map database and put it in a thing, and then we'll, you know, <laughs> like that's something nobody else would say. Did you think of that on the on the ship on the boat? Sorry, not ship. Uh, while you were racing this, like you were, were you working this out, or did you just you had this idea? Percolating in the back of your head already, that put all the pieces together. You know what I'm saying? You know, Ken and
0: I had actually speculated about vehicle navigation prior to the conversations with Nolan, but Nolan was really interested in doing something that was had a big market and a consumer market, and it was you know based on Nolan's interests that I thought more about it. And then, of course, Nolan is technically brilliant, and so when. I explained to Nolan how it would work, that you could afford to store a digital map so long as you stored it as a topological database, and that you didn't have to wait for GPS to be introduced because you could navigate using dead reckoning and map matching. You know, Nolan got that. He understood it very keenly. And so that gave him the confidence to go ahead and give us the seed money to start the company.
1: Yeah, that's so cool. That's just so cool. Uh, um, Did you know GPS was coming at that time?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. In those days, you know, i of course, went to Stanford, doubly, got my master's there and Parkinson is a legend. And so we all knew about GPS and we all knew it was going to happen, but we thought that map matching would be a or dead reckoning and map matching would be a temporary stepping stone. And eventually you'd use GPS instead, but a very odd unexpected thing occurred, which is, you know, we got a patent as part of ETAC on map matching. And we thought that that patent wouldn't be worth much once GPS came about. But then, that what happened was, even after GPS came about, every single car navigation system continued to use map matching in addition to GPS because it just looked better. You know, it looked better if the car symbol always was exactly on the road and it turned very crisply at the intersections. And so, in addition to the rotating map patent the map matching patent ended up being one of etac's most valuable patents and you know many millions were received by etac and its descendants as license fees on the map matching as well as the uh, rotating map patents
1: i like the fact that your inventions at etac were um they went beyond the scope of what's obvious we you know you can look at the uh the etac navigator as a product but it was actually your technology of the map matching and the digitizing of the maps became much more valuable than the product itself.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, ETAC was kind of before its time. And one of the problems we had for a consumer market was nobody knew what a navigation system was and they couldn't imagine that it was possible. And so it was just really hard to sell. But what ETAC ended up doing in order to survive is selling, you know, fleet management systems where ambulance fleets and fire departments and police fleets would use navigators in their cars with telemetry to keep track of where their cars were. And then delivery companies like Coca-Cola and UPS and FedEx would use the database to cluster and sequence their deliveries. And so that's kind of how ETAC became profitable until it was originally sold to uh, News Corp. And then News Corp bought it because of the MAP database.
1: Yeah. Yeah. For anyone who hasn't read my article about eTech, the summary is that, you know, Stan and uh, uh, Nolan through Catalyst funded this company called Etech and and Stan and, and many other cool engineers who I don't have time to n- mention right now because I don't have their names written down. I remember Walt Zavoli and some others, but they, they developed this navigation system and it was launched in 1985 and it used a, was it a vector screen CRT in the car, that green screen thing? Yeah, and a a cassette, special cassette tape made out of Lexan so it wouldn't melt on your dashboard that had digitized map data and you could see where you were in your car and it had these sensors on your wheels, right? To do the dead reckoning based on a starting point and other adjustments and things. That was the ETAC Navigator 1985. So that's what we're talking about. And um, one of the neatest little side stories of that, I think, is that the Navigator had this little triangle navigational symbol that's that's in the center of the screen that shows where your car is. And uh, that was another innovation of the Navigator was it was rotating the map based on your perspective of where your car is instead of having the map always oriented north, so to speak, and watching your car move around. And that that triangle shape was inspired by what, Stan? Can you tell me?
0: Um, Yeah, that, the triangle symbol, which we at the time we used to call the carcer. Because it was the sort of cursor showing the car, that was inspired by the asteroids game. And then the other thing that actually was inspired by the asteroids game was the the vector display. That our CRT display, instead of being raster scanned and bitmapped, um, instead we did what the asteroids game did, which was we actually deflected the beam to draw the roads and to you know actually draw out the letters. And there was a couple of big advantages to that. One was we didn't need to buy the expensive memory for a bitmap display, but the other huge advantage to that was that we could run the beam all the time. And so we got a lot more average beam current. And so the display was able to be much, much brighter than if the beam spent most of its time scanning the whole surface of the screen. Instead, we were able to have the beam spend all its time actually drawing roads and lettering labels. So it was interesting. The asteroids game had an effect both on the symbol for the car as well as for the vector display.
1: Yeah. So Atari's Asteroids was a 1979 arcade video game, and I was talking to Alan Alcorn about it, and he told me that he snuck a bunch of ETAC engineers into Atari. This is, I think, this is after he had left Atari, but he had friends there, obviously, and and snuck you guys. I don't know if it was you, Stan, or anybody else, to see some of their arcade games that they had in there. Like, I don't know whether it was their break room or something. And he was really proud that Asteroids inspired you <laughs> with that product.
0: <laughs> yeah, there was also a, a home game in those days called Vectrix or something like that.
1: Yeah, Vectrix.
0: Yeah, it also had a, a CRT vector display.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, I, Al Alcorn and Nolan both brought that to our attention when we were discussing how to do an inexpensive and very bright display.
1: Yeah, the cool thing is that even to this day, that symbol, your car, your car icon symbol is used even on like iOS on the Apple. Up, you know, when you're using your navigation stuff, there's a little asteroid ship essentially up on the top bar of a of a iPhone or, uh, you know, in some of those TomTom uh, Tom things that use uh, whatever the heck they call them these days. Is TomTom Tom even still in business? I don't even know.
0: Yeah, they are. Actually, that's what became a VTAC. Oh, yeah. Okay. ETAC was sold to News Corp and then to Sony, then it became tele and then it was sold to TomTom Tom for several billion.
1: And so it's neat that the, the, the maps you digitized at ETAC became the basis of all of these map databases used by other navigational companies later on. Is that true?
0: Uh, there's a couple of different competitive databases. Um, ETAC was one of the ones that has lived through time. And then the other one was a map database made by NavTAC which was a longtime competitor of ETAC. And so those two databases are you know, two of the databases that continue to get used by vehicle navigation systems today. And then the map matching that ETAC pioneered is, as I mentioned, used by just about every system, but of course the patents have expired. And then the rotating map display is something that it's hard to imagine that that was actually an innovation or that it got a patent because it's so obvious today. But at the time, it was interesting because it wasn't obvious to us, meaning especially me as a navigator, I assumed that the map should be north up. And I was actually quite overbearing and bullheaded about that. But within 20 seconds of getting in a car where we were experimenting with a software that had the rotating map, you know, within 20 seconds of driving that car, I became absolutely converted. Because when you're driving a car, your visual clues to your orientation are so strong looking out the window that it's just really, really natural to have the map on the dashboard be oriented the same way. So it's funny to imagine that anybody thought differently.
1: Yeah. Who thought of the idea of the rotating map at ETEC?
0: Um, my recollection is that it was um, J.B. Aligiani and uh, George Lockmiller who had the open-mindedness to go ahead and code it up to try it out. And it was interesting that when they first tried it out, it was considered to be just you know, kind of an interesting experiment. But within a day of having people go for test drives, we all became, you know, uniformly converted to the conviction that the had to have a rotating map display. And, of course, that's where the name of the company came from.
1: Yeah, hey, Describe that for a second, the Indonesian connection there about eTech. It was actually, um, I think it was Micronesian. Micronesian, okay.
0: You know, I had been interested in navigation forever. And so when I was in college, whenever I was taking a uh, – you know, a distribution course different from engineering, you know, like anthropology. I would write any paper I could, find a way to write it on something I was interested in, like navigation. So I wrote an anthropology paper at Yale about um, native navigation. And I'd, of course, read all the books I could find. And I had recalled when we were founding ETAC that I'd recalled that there was a Polynesian or Micronesian navigational term for this sort of canoe-centered view of the world where you imagine yourself in a canoe and the world is moving past you. And so I remembered that when we were looking for a name for the vehicle navigation company. And so given that we had already discovered that we were going to use a um, car-centered rotating map display, I figured that it would be cool to um, name the company after the Micronesian word for that concept. And I think it was a cool word, but I think there's only been three humans that ever actually recognized it um, (laughs) and thought that it was, you know, a perfect choice. And one of them was actually the uh,
1: Sir Edmund Hillary. (laughs) (laughs) One was the uh,
0: um, famous Polynesian navigator, Ninoa, Ninoa Thompson, who um, I had a chance to meet Ninoa and sail with him on Okalea, his Polynesian voyaging canoe. And I know I was both amazed and pleased that uh, any Howleys would actually know what the term meant, and if even more, have named a company after it.
1: This is so brilliant. This is this is why I mean this this is the culture of tech. This, this is why I started this podcast. I love these crossovers between you know history and culture and technology. And I I think I even mentioned this when I interviewed you three years ago, which is I find the strongest innovators have these multidisciplinary worldviews that combine things like Steve Jobs was interested in typography and aesthetics and computers and you were interested in navigation and sailing and computers and technology and things like that you know and you had this cultural background of uh, reading about uh, navigational history and I think it's so neat how all that came together to form your career
0: well I can't imagine being included in the same paragraph as jobs but I do accept your point that it is really you know, I've been interested in navigation my whole life and I've had the incredible good fortune to be able to work in it, you know, both in technology as well as in traditional, you know, offshore sailing navigation. But I feel really blessed that I've had that good fortune. And I think that that background in navigation has benefited my technical work because I've had that good fortune that my technical work has always been somewhat navigation related.
1: Yeah. I forgot to mention your work at SRI briefly, which is, you had that reputation as an engineer doing navigational things at SRI before the whole uh, Bushnell-related episode, right?
0: Yeah, I was at SRI. I went to SRI right out of, out of Yale, and then SRI put me through their honors co-op program, so I got my master's at Stanford. And That's a great deal that the companies in the Bay Area do. And then at SRI, I was in the remote measurements lab, and it wasn't exactly navigation, but nevertheless, it was close enough so that I thought I was in habit. You know working in the field of remote measurements whether it was over the horizon radar or underwater optics and it did some with ken milns actually and alan phillips i did a uh, project to do remote ice tracking so we built a wave hf radar to measure the movement of the, the arctic ice it was a great five years
1: Now, after ETAC, you transitioned into the sport vision thing. And I think, if I remember correctly, the the hockey puck thing came about while you were still at News Corp. Was that right?
0: Yeah. So what happened was Rupert Murdoch, the chairman of News Corp, he acquired ETAC in part due to the insight of a guy named John Evans. And they acquired ETAC because of the MAP database. And it was an incredible insight that Murdoch had, Murdoch and John Evans. You know, today we look at Google Maps and all of this is obvious. But in those days, they had the insight that if you had the highest quality digital map database, that this would be important for business because someday people were going to ask questions like, where is the nearest and how do I get there? And so they acquired ETAC, not because they wanted to build consumer vehicle navigation products, but because of the map database. They bought it for all the right reasons. And it was a great, long, farsighted vision. And then I was asked to continue to run ETAC, which I did. And then a few years after ETAC was bought, Rupert Murdoch asked me to be vice president for technology for News Corp, the parent company. And he did that because this was an interesting time for media companies. This was in about eighty-nine. He asked me to be VP Technology for News Corp. In I think it was ninety-three. And what was what had happened is when I was running ETAC, which was a little tiny operating division of News Corp. I got to know the other CEOs because I'd be at the management conferences. And they realized I was an engineer who could explain things to them. And they could ask me questions like, what is digital? And what is encryption? And what's the internet? And what does Bill Gates want to talk about in this upcoming meeting? And and so they started asking me to attend their meetings. And Rupert was aware of this. And so eventually Rupert asked me to be head of technology for News Corp, which I did. And then a year or so after that, um, News Corp had a bit of a debt crisis, and so they asked me to sell ETAC.
2: Hmm. So
0: I sold ETAC to Sony, and then, as I mentioned, it was subsequently sold or became Tele Alice, then was sold to TomTom. Tom. Um, but that's how I ended up in News Corp. But then the job I had at News Corp was a terrible job. I was in this staff job, just flying around, going to meetings, and very unhappy because I, at the time, viewed one's you know, ability to earn a living, I measured that as one's ability to build things because I was kind of an engineer at heart Yeah. and I wasn't building anything. I was just flying around and talking. So to keep myself sane, I came up with a project working with David Hill, who was then starting Fox Sports. And um, we came up with the idea of building a system to track and highlight the position of a hockey puck in live TV. And this is a technology now known as augmented reality, although the term hadn't really become then. And so we started on that project in 94, and then the system was introduced in 96. And that's the system who had a direct descendant that was the yellow first Down Line, and then the K-Zone, and NASCAR, and Liveline, and the America's Cup. But all these other systems directly descended from that hockey puck system in 96.
1: Wow. And just to describe this for everybody listening, this is the system where if you watch on TV, I don't know if they still use the hockey puck glowing thing today, do they? No, they don't. They don't? Okay, but they you, there was a technology here that Stan developed and his engineers that would highlight the hockey puck on the screen. And it, the hockey puck had a, a infrared emitters embedded in it right? And there were sensors around the rink and it would triangulate the position and somehow transpose that onto the image of the television screen.
0: Yeah. So you're right about how it measured the position of the puck. And then we had optical encoders and the cameras. So we would measure their pan and tilt and zoom and focus 30 times a second. And we would survey the location of the cameras and we would measure the distortion of the lens as a function of zoom and focus. And so then what we could do is knowing the 3D position of the puck 30 times a second, we could compute a very simple graphic that would show the location of the puck and the trail behind it. And we could superimpose that graphic on every field of video 60 times a second from each of the broadcast cameras. And in those days, it was just barely possible to get the computing done in time using, you know, the fanciest um, SGI computers. Wow! And actually, Jim Clark was a big help in the early stages of that project because I computed that it was just barely possible to do this. And then I called Jim Clark and asked him if he would confirm, you know, my hunch. And he did. And actually, that started a long relationship with Jim Clark that I still have because I'm navigating today on his boats. Oh, Wow or up until recently, I've navigated on his boats.
1: So you, you essentially invented augmented reality. <laughs> Am I right?
0: I don't think I'd say that. But what I would say is that the group of guys that I worked with, we implemented augmented reality in broadcast TV. And we had a small advantage over cell phone implementations of augmented reality and that we could buy ourselves some delays so that we could do the timing perfectly. And so we could really do augmented reality properly and make the yellow first down line that we superimpose on the grass, make it look like it really was stuck to the grass and underneath the players. And it turns out to be really important to do it properly, because if you let the yellow line on football, if you let it swim around, or if you let it, or if you key on top of the players, then your eyes or your brain, cause the thing to pop up into the air and to be this weird yellow thing flying around above the field. But if you correctly keep it stationary relative to the grass, even as the camera pans and tilts and zooms and focuses, and if you draw around the players properly, then your brain puts it down on the grass and it looks like it's you know, chalk in the grass. So we didn't invent augmented reality, certainly, but I think we were the first ones to do it really, really well. And it was somewhat easier for us to do well because we could make the timing perfect because we could delay the whole broadcast by a fraction of a second.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Give your computers time to calculate all that stuff. Yeah. And it still had to work in real time.
0: Meaning if you were delaying the broadcast by half a second to do the graphics, well, at the end of the game, you still had to be only a half second late. So you had to keep up. So it was in every sense, it was still a real time system. But nevertheless, we could delay the broadcast to half a second. And if you do that with a pair of augmented reality glasses, the person gets seasick. Yeah, (laughs) But on TV, you can Mm -hmm. do it and get away with it.
1: Speaking of augmented reality, I think maybe if anything predated that is probably maybe a heads up display for a fighter jet or something that might overlay like uh, a lock on kind of, you know, that's the only thing I can think of that would predate what you're talking about.
0: Well, there's certainly a lot of discussion about it. You know, Lanier wrote about it a lot. And then the military systems then and now, they had to be good enough to be functional, but they didn't have to be good enough to try to fool you. Meaning nobody actually was trying to fool the pilot into thinking that he was looking at the
1: at reality.
0: reality. And the same thing is true of the augmented reality systems in helicopters where they superimpose an image or a map of, you know, what road is what. It's okay if that stuff swims around a little bit because it's still just dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. But to because um, you're not trying to fool people. But for the yellow line on the football field to not be distracting, you had to get it really, really right. In fact, you had to get some things right that you wouldn't e- even imagine. Like here's a subtle point. But TV cameras they keep the shutter um, wide open so that every field the video the shutter is open for the full sixtieth of a second. So when the camera quickly pans, you get motion blur. Because of the, the long shutter speed, well, what we discovered was when the cameras quickly panning, we had to intentionally blur the yellow line because otherwise you'd have the motion blur of the whole field blurring as the camera pans, but the yellow line would would stay sharp wow. it would suddenly look wrong, so we had to actually induce motion blur to make it to preserve the illusion. Another thing that would happen is you know especially in college stadiums, the fans would all be stomping you know in time and so then the camera baskets if they're hung off the front of these bleachers would start to bounce and so then the video would bounce but the yellow line wouldn't bounce and that would that would destroy the illusion so what we had to do is we had to measure we had to mount you know fiber optic gyros on the tripods to measure the bouncing so that we could bounce the yellow line to correspond to the bouncing of the video which of course wasn't measured by the optical encoders in the tripod so the funny thing about you know what we had to do is you had to model these very, very subtle effects. They're actually imperfections of the video, but we had to induce those same imperfections in the yellow line in order to preserve the illusion. Wow,
1: that is incredible. There's just a certain purity to that engineering that I really admire. <laughs> I don't know. It's just one of the coolest things I've ever heard. So um, as a last point to that, I think it's neat how you were involved with not getting lost on a boat, not getting lost in a car, and you're not losing the hockey puck in a rink either, (laughs) you know, like keeping track of where it is. So everything you've done is sort of navigation or or positional-related technologies.
0: And if you talk to people that know me well, they say that's because I needed it, because without a vehicle navigator, I'm just about the worst. I mean, I do fine at navigating boats, but I don't do roads very well without the help of ETAC or the modern descendants.
1: When you get into a car today, do you... Do you feel a direct connection between what you're using, whether it's an iPhone or whatever it is, and your eTech inventions? Do you get that sense that it's a continuation of your inventions? Um, yeah, I mean,
0: it's it's hard to know. I mean, a lot of these things don't directly descend, but like you say, you know, the the early implementations, I think, do tend to influence subsequent implementations and so i think there probably is an impact that we had at etac and then of course at etac we also helped with you know many of the other early vehicle navigation implementations because we licensed companies like clarion and robert bosch and blaupont and general motors and, mm-hmm. and then licensed many companies with you know for software and map data so i think there probably is a
1: uh, a lineage connection yeah i think
0: there's some effect that we
1: Yeah, just the way I see it, even though ETAC's system wasn't GPS-based, and now we have GPS-based systems that just obviously just looking at the interface of any sort of map-based system, it looks like a high-resolution version of the ETAC navigator display to me. I mean, you've got the map, you've got the cursor, you've got the directions, you know. I I see that as a direct descendant of uh, what you guys did at ETAC, and I think that's really neat.
0: You know, some of us from ETAC, when we occasionally get together, we talk about how much harder the problem we had to solve was because you know, we had to run the whole thing in an 8088 running at 4.8 megahertz we had a 256 kilobytes of memory we had to build our own display build our own mass storage device build our own flexgate compass build our own real sensors and you know today you don't have to be so clever about the map storage because it can all be parallel access And just so many of the problems are easier today. But it was interesting how many difficult problems we had back then. But we had just enough breadth, and the group of us that you know came out of SRI to address them all, whether it was you know mass storage or display or compasses or topology or whatnot. And then of course Marv White was a key part to that because he was the guy we got from the Census Bureau. Oh yeah, who was one of the one of the inventors of the Dime File and one of the most capable guys in the world at sorting out how to store map data in a topological structure
1: yeah that story is so incredible and i encourage anyone who's interested in in etac and what we're talking about to read my article because I, i think i talked about marv white and your connection with him and just so neat I'd like to fast forward to today briefly before we wrap things up, which is, do you think anything fundamental about who we are as humans has changed now that we always know where we are? I mean, was, in other words, was something lost by being found all the
0: time, you know? Wow. That's a really interesting question. And
1: it is. Like you mentioned growing up and being lost, that that was just part of who you were you know even when i was a kid in the 80s we could drive out somewhere and make a wrong turn and we'd be like oh crap where are we you know and it could be terrifying you drive into the bad part of town or something and you're just oh am i gonna get out again
0: and we also kind of became a little bit more aware of our surroundings because we learned how to deal with it meaning growing up in southern california i knew that you just look at the tv antennas and they were all pointing at mount wilson so you could always, no matter where you went on your bicycle, you could always keep your orientation by looking at the TV antennas, which in those days, every house had one. And they were all pointing at Mount Wilson. And then in the woods, you know, you could look for the moss on the side of the trees, or you could use your you know, wristwatch that had hands spinning around and orient it with the sun and figure out which way south was. But nevertheless, in those days, we always had this in the back of our minds task of keeping track of where we were. And then now, you know, there's a whole generation that assumes that knowledge of where you are is just sort of part of the fabric of being. Mm-hmm. That, you know, everything, not only everybody, but everything knows where it is. And it's just different. I had this conversation with um with Parkinson, and you should actually track down and talk to Parkinson about it. He's mm-hmm. a really interesting guy, but he's, of course, the father of GPS. And he's thought quite a bit about this. But I think it really may change the sense of being human, the fact that, In the old days, we were always some degree or another of lost or uncertainty whenever you were out and about. And then, you know, today that never happens. You can just pull out your phone and whammo, it might show you on the other side of the street.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I see it as it's if you really think about it. I mean, being lost is if you're truly lost, it's like one of the scariest things that can happen to you as a person. It's like elemental. I can imagine like ancient man prehistoric man wandering out and you know like you lose your tribe you get eaten by a lion or something you know and and so what you've done with etac and and all everything you've done is almost cure this ancient problem you know you and parkinson everybody else who's worked on this is is it's like cheating death (laughs) it's like something that's so fundamental to humanity that is, uh, uh, never, we'll never have to worry about again, as long as our satellites keep flying in the in space.
0: Yeah, I think it is. And I think it's right up there with, you know, the internet of thing and the social media in terms of things that are probably having a major societal impact and that it's really hard to scratch your head and think about the long-term implications of the fact that everything knows where it is today. Yeah. Well, that's
1: incredible. So, uh, Unless you have any other thoughts to add, we could wrap this up because it's been such a a really wonderful conversation. It's been great to talk to you.
0: Well, as always, it's really fun chatting with you and you come up with fascinating and insightful questions and perspectives.
1: Thank you. I think you, as an inventor and a businessman, are probably one of the most underrated innovators in California tech history. So anything I can do to tell people about that story of everything you and your associates have done, it makes me very happy to do so. (laughs) Well, it's an honor to hear that. Well, thank you. It's been a great pleasure talking to you, and I'll talk to you again soon.
0: Sounds great. Take care. All
1: right. Bye-bye. Bye.
2: Will we ever get lost again? will we ever be tossed around because i wouldn't mind
1: Well, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. I'd like to especially thank Stan Honey for taking the time to do this in between his sailing adventures all around the world. It's always a delight to talk to him. He's such a brilliant guy. And also, I'd like to thank Harry McCracken, my editor at Fast Company, for accepting the pitch on ETAC that I sent him, oh man, almost three years ago now. And uh, he's always a good sport. And also, Nolan Bushnell, who... Uh, actually funded etech and believed in Stan and Ken's idea and gave the world of navigation a huge kickstart, which he usually doesn't get credit for. So, thanks Nolan. And if you want to support this show, go to culturetech.com and leave a very positive comment, or a negative one. The feedback is wonderful either way. It shows everybody that someone's actually listening to this thing, and that I just spent the last 20 days of my life doing something good. And if you want to support the show financially, go to patreon.com slash bingeedwards. That's B-E-N-J Edwards. And anything you can contribute is a huge help. So that's all for now. See you next time.